John, advertise your trivia night. It's, it's Tell uh, people to come to trivia. It's at a bar, and it's not my trivia night. It's hosted by Sunset Trivia. Ah. Yes. The venerable Sunset Trivia. Mm-hmm. Doing trivia nights all over the greater San Diego area, I believe. Yeah. And they also might be doing... Do you have Do you have some kind of trivia company up in your neck of the woods or no? Not that I'm aware of. I know there are different companies, but nobody in L.A. is smart enough to do trivia. Oh, this is a good or point. Like, oh, I feel like fools. Not knowing that if they had me, Greg, on their team. <laughs> Instant winners. <laughs> I, here's the problem. A scouting agent yeah. is not going to be like, this guy's really good at trivia. I'm going to give him a deal. That's why <laughs> That's why there's no one playing trivia. But John, who LA. says, I, I'm, not looking to, I'm not looking to get hired by some uh, presumably excellent and, and perceptive <laughs> studio executive who knows, oh, this guy has some encyclopedic knowledge of film. Obviously, he's set up for success in the film industry. That's not what I'm seeking. I am seeking to dominate and eviscerate my enemies. Oh, okay. Good to know. I am good out for know. blood. Not out for not out for a new job or prospects or whatever. I am out for absolute vengeance and utterly demolishing my competition. By that's fear? What I, that's what I do trivia for. Or by blood. That's what Greg yes. says. That's mm-hmm. a reference to the very popular show Breaking Bad. In case you <laughs> didn't know, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because that seems to be the only se- series finale which people seem to actually be like mildly approving of. Mm, uh, well, we we could talk about that. I think I think once people let it kind of set in a little bit, they realized, hey, wait a minute, he kind of got off scot free, didn't he? That's kind of an ad. That's kind of a <laughs> dick move. Like I think, given enough time, either the the, the initial reaction. Is obviously a big litmus test, but once you let it kind of settle in, I think everyone kind of realizes it's like, oh yeah, it was it was good or bad. Or we can all just admit to ourselves that things are allowed to be okay. All right. <laughs> no one like not everything has to be amazing or terrible. All right, internet. Okay, can true. we can we just agree that sometimes things are just like okay and everything just is fine. <sighs> I'm so That's very sick fair. of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sick of the discourse. John, would the world be better off without an internet? I don't even want to think you have about, to think about it. it. I don't, don't even you? want to think about it, honestly. Like, cause I, let's let's pull Twitter. Let's ask Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> that is not the, that is not the place to ask. <laughs> it's like, hey, 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 4chan. Do you think the world would be a better place with the internet or without it? <laughs> no, these are obviously not the venues that we should be asking. However, mm-hmm. maybe maybe we should go out on the street, be like uh, Jay Leno, do some jaywalking. <laughs> I believe that's a better litmus test. He can't have been the first person to do that. Like, why, oh, no. why is it no. called jaywalking when literally there's like, like Billy on the street? Well, I don't know, John. If you were aware, there's this pun. Oh, you see, you see, it, it's this pun. Um, it's, the host's name was Jay Leno, and it sounds like Jay talking. So it's Jay walking, <laughs> but he's out on the street. So he's not just talking; he's walking as well. Oh, okay, got it. Thank yeah. you, for, thank you for explaining. Now I know why it was so suddenly popular. Even though Billy Eichner is doing the same thing with considerably funnier results, constantly, yeah. constantly, uh, Emmy nominated results. Exactly. Did he, has he won? Uh, I doubt he's won. <laughs> I'm sure if he won, we would have heard about it. Mm-hmm. He, he would be. And if he was just, and if he lost, we we would also hear about it. Oh, we'd be petitioning. We'd be <laughs> a million, a million strong. Change this, please. Yes. All of season three of Billy Eichner on the street. Please refilm it and make it better. <laughs> yes. Speaking of, um, John, let's talk about the f- big finale of Game of Thrones later. Yes. Right? First, you have to have your supper, kids. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is uh, ostensibly a movie podcast, so obviously we talk about a a film that we probably should have seen by now. We're catching up on classics and reevaluating them with fresh eyes. 
Yes, and while we're in the midst of the Cannes Film Festival, we thought, hey, let's revisit a big Palme d'Or winner. Not just one that won the big award back in 1984, but has also garnered critical acclaim since then. Mm -hmm. And we are talking about the Harry Dean Stanton starring uh, film. I was trying to think of a better <laughs> word for it. Trying, what's the French word for film? Uh, film. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uh, film. That's, 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 yeah. <laughs> we are talking Paris. Texas. Slide guitar and that was my first sign that I would be disappointed. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, car cards on the table. This was my selection mm -hmm. because it has garnered such a such a lauded reputation in the years since. It's on Roger Ebert's great movies list. He's he fawned over this from day one, and it obviously has the 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 laurel of being a Palme d'Or winner. And it's also the crowning achievement, I think, of a director who doesn't have a huge mass appeal, but certainly has a cult following in Vim Vendors. Mm. I was going to say um, this. You can see how pretentious I'm being by <laughs> pronouncing his name in the proper Germanic way. <laughs> um, I was going to say, for a film that has such an American-sounding pedigree, it, it sure is, there's a lot of European-looking names in the credits. I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> Well, it's it's in the credits as well. It literally says this is a French-German production. Mm, frogs. I, the damn frogs. <laughs> taking our jobs. That, that could have been a, a, a commercial consideration mm -hmm. because America's, well, maybe not these days, but for, for the longest time has been the most prosperous film market around the world. Mm -hmm. So maybe Vim Vendors in his, in his uh, intention to uh, quote, I, I want to quote here from the Wikipedia page, um, wish to tell a story about America. Mm. Um, obviously, small ambitions, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's also how he, in his, his, in his artistic ambition, also how he sold it to these French and German producers, just being like, hey, yeah, you want that dinero? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe tell an American story, huh? Yeah, yeah, the Americans buy up tickets. It'll be like yep. one of those westerns he promised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cards on the table. I actually, well, I, I'm of two minds of this movie. Let's let's yes. just talk technical to begin with. You could take any frame out of this movie and sell it in a portrait gallery for like a million dollars. Just technically, this film is just mm, chef's kiss, moi, beautiful. Absolutely, every single shot is just rule of thirds, golden ratio, just absolutely perfect. Just this gorgeous. is this is what the this is what the Twitter feed one perfect shot was made for in this movie. <laughs> And there's something, I don't know, there's something about, like, I've driven across the country twice, and mm -hmm. there is something about the western United States, just that 
desert that just feels like it stretches for miles and miles without ever stopping that is just so cinematic and just looks so beautiful under a a pristine blue sky that this movie just captures perfectly at least for the first half uh i do kind of appreciate the change of scenery in the second half Mm -hmm. when we kind of hit the suburbs and you know the the light pollution just kind of washes out everything (laughs) (laughs) so yes technically brilliant Story-wise, um, it's pretty much at first. I thought it was like, oh, so this is a less accessible Rain Man. Okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of digging it. But then it kind of, it, it not it, that it goes in kind of odd directions. I think the story is kind of set up to not subvert your expectations, but it does kind of feel like it loses the plot a little bit in the second half, and come to find out once you read the trivia you kind of understand why they didn't really actually film with the second half of the script planned it was more like all right let's let's spend the first half of the shooting schedule figuring out your characters and now let's figure out what your characters would do and it turns out what your characters would do is actually not that compelling which sucks (laughs) but it's still an absolutely gorgeous movie and it's very well directed and very well acted absolutely so it's it's hard to kind of judge as a as a complete whole of a picture i don't know if it equals the sum of its parts. I guess that's ultimately my uh, pithy summation of this film. I think that's a very fair summation. I was going to say, even though I lay my cards out of the table saying I was somewhat disappointed, granted, my expectations are astronomically high mm-hmm. for a Palme d'Or winner and one that Roger Ebert adores, because our tastes are pretty aligned. So my expectations were very high, and you're right, there's a lot of achievement in this film. You said, first and foremost, the cinematography by Robbie Mueller. Incredible. A lot of other great uh, artistic achievement that you can also dig into, like costume design, uh, the performances by Harry Dean Stanton and and Dean Stockwell as his brother. Great. Um, But I think it's also, as you said, kind of diminished by some of the other technical aspects of the movie. The first one I wanted to say was editing. Hmm. You know, people have lives, (laughs) so... (laughs) As as interesting as the lives of of Travis and Walt and Jane and the the story that they basically setting up this first half and then finding a com- compelling conclusion for it midway through filming, I I just wish we could get there sooner, hmm. because very uh languid pacing I'd say, uh kind of compelling start. Uh, the movie begins with a guy in a suit and a red baseball cap literally wandering through the desert, mm-hmm. and and. Also, tone-wise, it reminded me somewhat of a Wes Anderson movie. One shot in particular, it's not quite Rule of Thirds, it's Harry Dean Stanton, he enters a bar, and he's in exactly in the middle of the frame, and it's a wide angle, and he's kind of bug-eyed at this point. And then later, there's like a comedy shot where he goes, chews on some ice, and then falls out of the frame. <laughs> and there's been a, and you see there's been a guy in the corner the whole time just kind of observing this, even though the camera really hasn't been focused on him. Then all of a sudden, you just hear, Harry! Like, he was kind yeah. of perplexed by the whole thing as well. Yeah. So I, I initially thought this was going to be searing drama, but it, it mixes tone a little bit here mm-hmm. with kind of like droll humor, a twangy slide guitar score that doesn't exactly like leap out at you trying to tell you telegraph what emotion you should be feeling. Hmm. Yeah, but it's, it sets the tone really well. Exactly. And so, yeah, there, initially there's this mystery of like what the heck happened to to Travis, we learn his name is Travis, and his brother like flies all the way out from Los Angeles to basically retrieve him, and it's this compelling mystery, kind of trying to reingratiate himself to his family and his son, and that's the bit of the story that I found most compelling. The sto- the bit of the story that they seem to actually prepare and write for. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, yeah, 
you're right. For the first third, it's it's definitely an enigma. Like, how did Travis end up in the desert? Why is he there? Why did he disappear for four years? And that stuff I found very compelling. Once we get to the family-related drama, I was kind of like, oh, okay, he's re-ingratiating himself. And I don't know, like like you said, the expectation of, like, searing drama. It was like, oh, the kid doesn't really want to do anything with him. But after some time, the kid starts to warm to him, and I thought that was cute. And then it turns into the second road trip, which is, all right, let's go find mom. And that's when I was kind of like, oh, all right, well, this kind of didn't go in the direction I was kind of hoping. But... Well, what direction were you hoping it would go into? I don't know, like... Because we, in the third act, we do eventually get kind of a explanation of where Travis has been and why he kind of disappeared. But I don't know if that really befits the character because the whole, I thought the whole thing it was building towards in the first act was the fact that Travis was maybe a bit touched. Maybe he had kind of something more mentally going on, but instead it's just like, oh, it was basically just kind of a nervous breakdown. You know, that's in and of itself, that's what it was eventually. And I just kind of wish it came up with a more not a more compelling the the explanation it's not lacking in interest what it's lacking in it was the delivery i feel like because it does just basically become an exposition yes. dump because he literally just you know he reunites with his former wife and i don't, I don't want to call her ex-wife because i don't know if they formally went through the whole divorce process but mm-hmm. the, he basically more or less reads her the riot act kind of of why the relationship fell apart which I don't know really didn't fit with me because again he doesn't speak for the first twenty minutes of the movie, and so well that's the thing I think that was the contrast. So mm. yes, it starts out very enigmatic, and our main character Travis doesn't speak for the first twenty six minutes of the movie mm-hmm. according to the trivia, and then contrast two hours later, guess what he's all he's doing is basically pouring his heart out and doing nothing but talking for the final twenty minutes of the movie. Yeah, I guess that's true. I think that's the kind of creative arc we're following here Mm. is a guy who doesn't want to reveal anything literally running away from his problems and now he's going to confront them and expressing himself So that's that's the arc I think we're supposed to go mm-hmm. through. The question is, is it compelling <laughs> or dramatic or entertaining? And so that's that's where I was kind of lost at the end. Like, oh, I get it, <laughs> but it doesn't make it. It doesn't draw me in enough. It's a, it's I call it the adaptation problem. Like, oh, I get that it becomes the ridiculous movie that Charlie Kaufman's not trying to write, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make it any more compelling for me. Mm-hmm. So I I understand your points there. But I do want to push back because I did find the most compelling bits are when he's trying to ingratiate himself. My favorite scenes are there's a 
big montage where they're watching home movies. And um, I, I like when we cut back to the scene in the living room and people are kind of shot in profile. And, and we actually see Travis smile. It felt like a character was growing a little bit. That's true. And, yeah. grow, and growing on me. Um, and then, of course, there's I think the cutest scene is his son Hunter is still reluctant to actually, you know, show affection for this estranged father. Mm-hmm. Does agree to kind of walk home, but they're on opposite sides of the street. And it becomes this kind of interesting clowning around where he's yeah. trying to where they start he starts copying his father and eventually the fa- their the son permits him to walk on the same stri- side of the street as him again very adorable it, you see characters grow and there are a few touches of that when we get to the second road trip mm-hmm. but yeah i want to go back to the perfect analogy that you had there's a scene that i think they literally copied in the movie rain man <laughs> and that is Two brothers who basically, basically one wants to return him to literally the same city, Los Angeles, but the one brother won't fly, so they have to take a take a road trip instead. Exactly. Yeah. And um, say, and another complications like with Rain Man, it's the underwear. This time, it's got to be the same exact car mm-hmm. in from the rental lot. Exactly. And that's why I thought it was going in a direction of like what mentally is going on with him. But it turns out it's not really much. He just kind of has been through the emotional ringer. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of why I was a little disappointed that that was kind of the only explanation. Me too. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, again, Vim Vendors announced he wanted to tell an American story. And I don't think there's anything uniquely American about two people not equipped for parenthood <laughs> and then one falling into alcoholism. Exactly. <laughs> And how did that journey into alcoholism turn into wandering the desert for four years? That's that's the story I wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't well, think te- we get te- a good explanation of that. No. Technically, he went to Mexico. Mm, okay. Which which seems cliche. It seems like out of, out of a traditional Western story. But, again, we're now in the mid-1980s, and we get um, kind of contrast between the mise-en-scene being the Texas desert, followed by the sprawling Los Angeles cityscape, followed by Houston. Mm-hmm. So, I I don't know. I guess it's trying to be like a modern spin on that that old classic Western tale, not classic Western tale, yeah. but a common trope in in Western. So, mm. no, I mean, I I guess maybe my ultimate problem is I don't. This is just my problem. I don't think Harry Dean Stanton is the most compelling actor. <laughs> um, I never. I, I like he does Spacey obviously very well. And so yeah. I think that's why the first part of the movie worked the best for me is because he was perfectly working right in his wheelhouse. Like, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to be difficult. I'm going to just be in my own little world. And that totally works for him. It worked in Alien. It works in this. Like, that's just what yeah. he does. And then when he's kind of required to emote, he's got a he's got a nice subtlety to it. But it leaves me want a little bit more. Like, really, really commit, Harry. Come on. Let's, let's see what happens. <laughs> I think... Yeah, maybe I, the, the difficulty is with the fact that he is a character actor. He's he's obviously doesn't have leading man looks, mm-hmm. and also he's he's required to yeah literally like carry this movie. Like we have to unravel the mystery of Travis yeah. here. I mean, and Lord I knows it wasn't time. going to Wade. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> or sorry, Walt. I, I, I called him Wade. I meant Walt. Yeah, I I'm glad you brought him up because I I did like Dean Stockwell because Dean Stockwell has to carry the movie for the first 25 minutes because his brother literally isn't talking, mm-hmm. and I kind of commend him for like the effort. I, nobody's gonna mistake Dean Stockwell for an Oscar winner, so. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's also just kind of a thankless role because the whole point of yeah. the character is he's meant to be 
kind of a fuddy-duddy. He's meant to be kind of a Ned Flanders. Like, a kid fucking shows up at his door, and he's like, all right, I guess you're living with us now. Like, he's yeah. the responsible one. He's the mature one. And so when he's obviously driving through the desert, it's like, you want to stop somewhere to eat? Like, you know, he's, he's naturally meant to be kind of a stick in the mud. So you're right. Like, the fact that he kind of carries the first 20 minutes of the movie, even though he's meant to be kind of this boring character with nothing else really going on underneath the surface. Like, he does, he does an admirable job. Thought you were afraid of heights. No, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling. Oh, yeah? Well, just don't look down. <laughs> uh, too bad th things don't look the same on the ground. What do you mean? Well, things are clearer up here. Might clear things up. Yeah, I had a talk with Ann last night. Yeah, she's pretty upset. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna leave. What? I'm leaving. I didn't tell you this in order to make you leave. I'm not trying to get rid of you, Travis. No, no. Well, what good is that gonna do? I'm gonna I mean, that's not gonna solve anything. I know that. I'm gonna find Jane. How are you gonna do that? It's been gonna... four years. She completely disappeared. I tried to find her. I tried everything. I couldn't find her. Yeah, well, I haven't tried yet. I can find her. What makes you so sure? Uh, I just know. Can we go down now? No! God damn it! You tell me what happened, Travis. I'm sick of this fucking mystery. I've been treating you like a spoiled kid ever since I picked you up in the desert. Now you tell me what happened with you and Jane. Uh, but while we're speaking to the characters, let's, let's, we've talked about the guys, John. Let's talk about the <laughs> ladies, huh? It's ladies' night now. Yeah. <laughs> First, I want to start with Walt's wife. Uh, her name is Anne, and she's played by Amour Clement. Mm, Travis. Travis. Yes. <laughs> she is, as they say, uh, extremely français. <laughs> she is extremely French. <laughs> she she does a she does a pretty good. I think she's a kind of nice, well-rounded character. She could have been in the position of being like, oh, but uh, when's he moving out? Like she could have t totally been kind of the nagging housewife, and I think they. They did a lot with her. She's as conflicted as Walt is. Like, what? Like, mm -hmm. what? What is he doing here? What do we do? And their struggle obviously was the same as Travis. They were thrust into being parents, kind of unexpectedly, but they both kind of rose to the challenge. And now, what are they going to do? That like Hunter is going to be taken away from them. Hunter being yeah. Travis's real child. And they debate. They can't actually put him in the hands of a, of a possibly irresponsible, also mentally unwell person like Travis. Exactly. And also, Hunter has gotten so used to living with him, he calls them mom and dad. Like, to yeah. tear him away from that, too, is obviously doing the kid a disservice as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's it, that's the stuff I found most compelling about the second act. It's like that whole, okay. that whole debate and that whole contrast of like, mm -hmm. well, what do we do now that he's back in the picture? Yeah, I do think it's slightly diminished by... The casting of Amour Clement, who I'm sure is fine, were she not speaking English as a second language, mm. and maybe like I don't know, struggling through it. Just it just didn't feel natural. Maybe like they only shot this in about five weeks, so maybe they didn't exactly have the the time to go through several takes where she could be comfortable speaking these lines. Yeah, um, it felt like a disconnect. Same with the German doctor who initially takes care of Travis when he wanders out of the desert. Like, why is it a German doctor? Like, well, because this is a French-German uh, production, and Vim Benders wanted to cast somebody he knew or was comfortable with. Oh, so. I liked him, though. He was, he was like, the yeah, perfect I... level of skeezy, where he's, like, nice until he's like, yeah, but, you know, it's a lot of work. Big payment for what I did. <laughs> yeah. 
I liked him a lot. I thought it was fun. Okay, I just yeah, love an yeah. affable German. Like, give me an affable German, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> it's a rare breed. A rare breed, these ones. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned affable German, because mm-hmm. let's get to the our other leading lady, Jane, mm. who's played by, I'm going to get her name completely wrong, Natasha Kinski, daughter of Klaus Kinski. Mm-hmm. Ach, <laughs> ach, ach, lieben. <laughs> Sorry, we, we didn't know Klaus Kinski. Obviously, we adore Klaus Kinski <laughs> in Akira, the Wrath of God, and Fitzcarraldo, and everything else. But so I mean, the resemblance what? is obviously there. Like, just look <laughs> at her headshot. <laughs> exactly, she has perfect skin, just like Klaus, <laughs> just, like, just like her father. No, but she's exquisitely beautiful. Um, I, I could feel some the fact that she's doing most of the time an impeccable American accent is also truly impressive. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw there were some moments of slipping, though, because she's required to also give a long monologue. And, yeah, if they had a few more takes or something like that. But in terms of just being this, this kind of listening ear and this character who's also enigmatic in a way and has to basically have her whole story told to her by Travis, mm-hmm. it works pretty well. Yeah. Uh, well, the other thing, uh, the thing I chalked it up to is the fact that she is a st- kind of... I don't know exactly what to call her. She's basically a stripper that, you know, when they find her in Houston, that's what she's doing to make ends meet. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's technically a peep show. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. Not that, not that I would know all the terms <laughs> or experiences. Well, the other thing too, is she's not a lady, lady of the evening. Some ladies would go home with their Johns, but not her. No, she's too no. dignified for such a thing. <laughs> and I kind of chalked it up to the fact that she's obviously performing. She doesn't initially know that it's Travis when he's behind the mm-hmm. glass. And so at first she's kind of like performing and she's kind of like feeling her out. So it's like, I didn't hear any accent. I just assumed it was like an extra level of performance that she was, the character was giving. So, okay. Cause again, I didn't even know she was German until I looked it up afterwards. So, yeah. Now I'm glad you brought that up because I keep saying that. <laughs> Cause I make great points. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You said you alluded to the fact that she doesn't know that it's Travis when he makes a first visit. Mm-hmm. However, a second time he comes around and then reveals he has to basically indirectly tell her via the story of how they came together and uh, then came together to have a, ch- a child. <laughs> and uh, Then she realizes, and then she exposes something like, oh, I, I had always hoped it was you. And I'm like, well, wouldn't you have known that the first time you met him? <laughs> so... It seems like another like kind of like little logical like like chink in the armor mm-hmm. that maybe if they had a complete screenplay like when they started the, that like wouldn't bother me so much. Yeah. But again, like you kind of get lifted high on these like brilliant choices with the cinematography or costume design or some of the exquisite composition, and you're kind of brought back down by say an odd story choice or so it's it's kind of like a, a roller coaster of quality this movie but i'd say it ends up on a on a high note yeah i'm yeah i think the ending kind of confrontation is i think what kind of complicates it is the fact that again like you said that contrast of like we had a character who literally went from not speaking all of a sudden eluquently reading you know the riot act to her like mm-hmm. strumming my pain with this thing something like that <laughs> that's the vibe i was getting and so, yeah. and then she, I, I just wish it didn't take 30 minutes. No, yeah. And the other thing, too, is she, for someone who is essentially, you know, a stripper, she's also equally eloquent and has like a poetic answer to everything, which also didn't quite gel mm-hmm. with the kind of serious, realistic tone the movie was kind of going with. It just, it felt too kind of flowery and theatery for a conclusion to a story that is meant to be kind of a searing personal family drama. I think that's ultimately where my 
my kind of distaste for the ending kind of comes in. I'm just kind of like, eh, it didn't really, didn't really fit with the rest of the tone of the movie. Even though we've got that beautiful twangy guitar, you know, do do do. Yeah. And when she told him these dreams, he believed them. He knew she had to be stopped, or she'd leave him forever. So he tied a cowbell to her ankle, so he could hear at night if she tried to get out of bed. But she learned how to muffle the bell by stuffing a sock into it and inching her way out of the bed and into the night. He caught her one night when the sock fell out and he heard her trying to run to the highway. He caught her, dragged her back to the trailer and tied her to the stove with his belt. He just left her there and went back to bed and lay there listening to her scream. Then he listened to his son's scream. And he was surprised at himself because he didn't feel anything anymore. All he wanted to do was sleep. And for the first time, he wished he were far away. Yeah, so over overall, I think it's good. Whether it earns those laurels, I'm not so sure mm -hmm. maybe the fact that this was in the 80s which was a the, we're talking real doldrums of <laughs> typical american you always filmmaking. say that you always say that you always like make it sound like the 80s was like the ultimate dark ages <laughs> it, it was and i i can it, look look for my new book on the subject Ooh. but it this was this was following the era in which directors had total control in which every studio executive was high on cocaine um, <laughs> and greenlit everything for good and for ill. Now, uh, after a series of flops, corporations like were now like thumb, put their thumb over the production, uh, not leaving a legacy of really great movies. Other than maybe like Back to the Future, I can't think of any anything else that really like transcends the era. <laughs> Scoff, uh, hello, there's a little movie called Willow. How dare you? <laughs> I thought you were going to say Short Circuit. Okay. Oh, well, the list goes on. Yeah. There's Mac and Me. There's... <laughs> so, but, John, I think we can tie it to the explosion of the independent boom, start, which you could say started with another Palm d'Or winner, Sex, Lies, and Videotape by Steven Soderbergh, mm. which then launched a, a new specialty division, I guess, and also uh, audiences craving something new in the cinemas. And so that's what elicited a, a huge boom of independent movies in the 90s and up until the 2000s. And then the financial collapse came and ruined everything. And then Marvel movies, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this has been Greg's filmic history corner. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I thought we were kind of in a, not a, maybe not a renaissance, but I don't think that like it's a bad time to be an independent filmmaker. Granted, we still like the only thing that gets wide releases are $400 million blockbusters, but... You know, you got a lot of options to get your film out there. You've got, you know, VOD and Netflix and things like that. Believe me, there's a lot of independent garbage on Netflix, guys. You really just got to search for it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I won't say it's a... I'd say it's a good time mm -hmm. between the production capabilities or technology making making uh, film production way easier. Mm -hmm. um, and you do have avenues that granted aren't traditional or I'd say... Uh, optimal, mm -hmm. like because I do like the theater experience, and but if you do want to get your movie out there and not be saddled with the world's most expensive whole movie, then yes, you have that you have that that ability now. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's. I think ultimately maybe the problem is nowadays it's like it's a, there's almost a dearth of it too much. 
Like, there's already so much competing for your yeah. attention. Whereas, that like... Too. That, that's one of the downsides. Yeah, like, the 80s and 90s, it's like, if an independent really movie hit the scene, it really hit the scene. Like, it really had to, yeah. like, freaking knock it out of the park. Whereas nowadays, it's like, you can... Like, the next Lars von Trier is probably out there somewhere. We just haven't discovered him yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I used Lars von Trier. I should have used Terrence Malick. The next Terrence Malick is out there. <laughs> well, interesting... A good point to bring up mm-hmm. because Vim Vendors has had some triumphs. Like I'd say, this movie is like a near triumph. Same with um, Wings of Desire a few years later. Also done some documentaries that I know our, our uncle isn't a, are fond of, but um, <laughs> but because he won the Palm Door here, he got um, basically an automatic qualifier. Do you know how automatic qualifiers work in golf? <laughs> no, I. Automatic qualifier sounds like a, everyone gets a trophy kind of consolidation. Well, it's not everybody gets a trophy, but basically if you win in a tournament like the Masters, mm-hmm. you automatically qualify every year from here on out. It doesn't matter how poorly you play oh. the rest of the way. <laughs> and so th- there are filmmakers like Terrence Malick, like Lars von Trier, who now get automatic attention at can every year for whatever movie they're making. Oh, that explains yeah. a lot. That's why Paul Schrader's career seems like such an enigma to me. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, Interesting. Yeah, and th- because now they have this huge platform, they automatically get into cans every year, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So now they they seem like they're on the level of a of a classic filmmaker, even if they only have, say, two good films. Well, even to have one great film <laughs> to your name is pretty impressive. Mm. <laughs> But, yeah, you're not up there also with, say, Hitchcock or Spielberg yeah. or Kurosawa or something. And it also continues that whole trend of auteur theory, which I don't buy for a second. I think that's bullshit. No, but, yeah. yeah. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't buy auteur theory either. Yeah, yeah. But... That said, there are a lot of great filmmakers that I see at Cannes every two years. <laughs> a couple of my favorites, Hirokazu Kureda oh, and the Dardan okay. brothers. So, yes, I will, not, I will not diminish their accomplishments. No. <laughs> what depressing three-hour misery fest do you have for me this year? <laughs> Is it about the family yeah. you choose, not the family you have? I sure hope it is. <laughs> no, John, everybody loved that film. The market has spoken. So, <laughs> Gee whiz, Mr. Kareda. I can't wait to see your great. next moving picture. <laughs> Shoplifters is great. Go see Shoplifters. <laughs> that could have been The Kid on the Bike as well. Come on. I could have been describing nice. either one of those films. <laughs> I, I consider that lesser Dardan. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Uh, their earlier work, like La Promesse and Rosetta, are, I believe are the high, highest highest echelon Dardan brothers, Ooh. if you ask me. Excuse me, sorry. The Greg has spoken, guys. Mm-hmm. Indeed, I have. I'm the arbiter. I should be the... <laughs> Look out for me, Can 2020. I am the president of the jury. 2020, Can's cancelled. It's cancelled! <laughs> it's cancelled by sticking another white man on the jury, <laughs> at the head of the jury, and just advertising... Uh, films directed by men so nice uh well greg i think all men must die i think that's ultimately the lesson we can take from 2019 Mm -hmm. don't you agree uh no i think that women be crazy (laughs) once they get into positions (laughs) of leadership and they must die (laughs) i forget who made uh, oh wait it was movie bob movie bob made the point he was he was doing a video essay and he said like it's interesting that the lesson of some stories is if if some men get power they might abuse it Whereas most stories, if a woman gets power, she will abuse it. So, yes, I think that's ultimately the path that Game of Thrones went, and I think it disappointed I, a lot of people. I guess citation, citations needed, movie bond. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, 
I think we we attribute that because this could be Game of Thrones. I I pray it's not the last, but mm. in terms of monoculture, in fact, of what what everybody had their eyes on, it, that doesn't seem to happen anymore. With the the fact that, as you said, our attention is so divided between eight million different entertainment options between streaming services, video games, mm. uh, tech, streaming music. There's more music now than ever. Even that, like you know, can distract, can kind of pull our attention away. So the fact that the, the, the fact that a finale like this <laughs> can draw in and unite us in, in, under a single co- topic or conversa- point of conversation, yes. I think is really inspiring. Yes, it can unite us under hatred because it was stupid. <laughs> Season 8 garbage. Should redo it. Re- <laughs> sign everyone back to the contract. Get fucking DB Du Bois or whatever their names are. <laughs> DB Du Bois. <laughs> Yes, W, the original author of Game of Thrones, W. E. D. Du Bois, Du Bois. <laughs> for for being written by a black man, there sure aren't a lot of black characters. Interesting. <laughs> no, exactly. Only two speaking parts. One of them dies. All wrong. W. W. E. D. Du Bois is canceled. <laughs> All right, John. John, let's do a reverse pyramid here. Okay. How about how about we start on a granular level? Like, what did you think of the series finale? Then we'll go to what did you think of the se- season? Mm-hmm. And then, bold view, series in total. Maybe we'll su- sum it up in just one, uh, two words. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, f- five words. Exactly five words. All right. Uh, uh, Episode-wise, I thought it was fine. It captured the tone. It captured the action. It, it was a standard for me. If it weren't for the finality of it all, it would have felt like a standard Game of Thrones episode to me. And that's not a bad thing. A normal episode of Game of Thrones is compelling in and of its own right because the characters are so interesting. So, you know, we get those little moments of humor, like when that Tully guy stood up and was like, I should be king. And it was like, shut the fuck up, sit down. <laughs> he didn't even get a chance to say exactly. I should be king. <laughs> I mean, I think the, like, if it were just, if the expectation was that there was another season, maybe after this, I think like mm. maybe people would be a little bit more forgiving thinking like this is the last episode though obviously colors your whole expectations but honestly i thought it was fine and i thought it was a fine way to end the season or the series and it, as a as itself it, like it kind of goes like the the lord of the rings route where everyone kind of gets a little moment and you know we get the the slow motion as the music swells and you know as they're all going off on their own journeys but i thought it was fine i thought it was fine yeah, I, I guess fine is the word for it. That's that's the one thing I didn't like is, like, it, it's clear George R. R. Martin was so inspired by The Lord of the Rings, including the ending, mm-hmm. because like like the movie Return of the King, it just get, goes on and on forever. <laughs> I, th- I agree with you that it kind of harkened back to, I think, traditional Game of Thrones, because the eighth season and the seventh season, it felt like like each episode has to be a movie it's gotta, with epic sh- yeah, shots. Yeah, battle, battle, battle. <laughs> Exactly, like literally every shot looks like a desktop background <laughs> of like epicness, and uh, I know some people have like tried to cut together videos of saying like, "Oh, the actors are dissatisfied," and I'm like, "Yeah, I would be if you know, <laughs> in prior seasons you're just doing uh, quiet chamber scenes where you're digging into juicy dialogue, and then you can go to your trailer later. Mm-hmm. This <laughs> these last two seasons have this just been them standing around watching special effects go by in the frigid cold of Northern Ireland. <laughs> yeah, it's probably sucked to film these last two seasons. <laughs> I would be dissatisfied too. But you're right. It's like we finally kind of got back to those quiet conversation scenes, and that's why it felt like 
obviously the also the way that the showrunners wanted to wrap up it felt like whiplash and that's what the series finale kind of felt like too mm. compared to all the epic battles we had in the last three episodes now to have these kind of quiet scenes of people just talking was uh i, I think appropriate to the show but also um a little jarring so that's why i haven't i haven't fully formed an opinion on it yet yeah i mean i think the you could also, if we're talking about the season as a whole, I think you could also make the mm-hmm. argument that, yes, it also felt anticlimactic, mostly because you have 10 million plot threads, some of which just didn't bother to get resolved because there was no way they were ever going to resolve it all. But also there yeah. was a, I think the ultimate problem with the last two seasons, if we can move on to the discussion of the last two seasons, which everyone seemed to have reviled, mm-hmm. which I don't completely yeah. understand. The only thing I can think of is, yes, because they started moving towards a point of finality, then it kind of felt less special. It kind of felt a little too preordained. And again, once that level of expectation is kind of put in, then obviously it's going to color the rest of the opinion, uh, or the rest of your opinions of what else is going on. Because those first couple seasons, they're very scattershot. They're like, you know, introducing people left and right, and it's like, oh, this is a new plot thread, this is a new plot thread, or oh, this is what we're going to be doing this season. Whereas now everything was kind of like coalescing. And it couldn't help but feel kind of like anticlimactic. Even with that third episode, like The Long Night, like for me, that kind of felt a little flat because it's like, yeah, it's a huge battle scene. You've got a fucking zombie dragon tearing up, you know, Winterfell. But then at the end of the day, it's like, oh, this huge existential threat, the fucking Night King that you built up for five plus seasons get stabbed and then it's dead and then oh phew that's done all right phew all right moving on to cersei <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it, maybe this is why george r, r. martin takes forever to write his books because he, he's trying to find ideal storylines and mm-hmm. maybe there was a way that he hasn't found yet to make the white walkers and the others or whatever you call them more compelling mm-hmm. Or at least or, tie or more it of a in. threat, or more of a factor, say in the, in the final Game of Thrones, or whoever yeah. like finally ascends to power, or what I thought the whole series was building to, and they kind of they kind of poke at this is that um, we will move from monarchy to democracy, <laughs> like a more ideal form of government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, again, breaking that wheel, which, and that's kind of the weird thing about the finale too, is like they even they laugh off the idea of even introducing democracy at all. <laughs> I think the well, I I love that scene because again, I knew I thought that's where the series was going, mm-hmm. and it seemed like it was going to be the big rousing moment for Sam to deliver. Like, what if what if we let the people decide, <laughs> and then for for all of them to laugh it off? Like, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure even our beloved like characters like Sansa and Arya were kind of giggling at that notion too. <laughs> exactly, and I think it like honestly, I love the idea of Bran being king because again, it was unexpected. And honestly, mm-hmm. Bran has had nothing to do for the whole series. <laughs> and he kind of makes the perfect sense because he's obviously a character with a tremendous amount of power supernaturally, and he's had nothing to do. So it's like, yeah, why not? Well, let's put him on the throne. And it's never about really who's on the throne. It's all about his, you know, consort. It's all about the hand and the table and who, what's what's going on. Like the actual, the best scene of the whole episode was them sitting down and discussing all right what do we need to do who's paying for it <laughs> like yes. again the actual boring shit of governing and so yeah. it's like the wheel has kind of been it hasn't been broken but it's been hobbled it's like yes we're kind of in a better direction now <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'd say if you ask anybody they'd say the best scenes could be well they obviously love the battle scenes too mm-hmm. but you could say like the small council is kind of the ideal way to end it mm-hmm. um i wish we didn't have to have that interminable 
the Return of the King-esque ending where all the Starks go their own way. And I was like, okay, final shot now. No, okay, final <laughs> shot now. <laughs> Is this going to be the final shot? No, okay. So we're going to have to watch uh, Jon Snow continue to trudge uh, past the wall and into the woods. We're going to have to see uh, Sansa continue to walk through the hall and get coronated or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I wish it didn't take that long. But also, yeah, I'm glad you... Because I think over the course of, say, 10 episodes, we can, in terms of how divisive these last two scenes were, we could really pick and choose, like, what were the best, like, best scenes and best moments, and it kind of colors our impression of the previous 10 seasons. Now, if you look at the Wikipedia page of episodes from season 7 and 8, it's just two headings. Like, here's what's happening at Winterfell, here's what's happening at King's Landing, and that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, so obviously it, it's funneled down it, to instead of a sprawling spider web, now it's kind of just like a straight line, and I think that's ultimately where the d- disappointment was for the past two seasons. It's like, all right, we've whittled it down to the finer points, and now it's just less compelling. And I saw somebody on Twitter usually do that. Uh, she was complaining, like co- contrasting, like, oh, a great season scene from season three. Now compare that to an awful scene from <laughs> season seven. <laughs> when. To be honest, they were virtually the same. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if again moving on to the larger conversation, if we if we reverse yeah. funnel it, now we're talking about the series as a whole. I, for me personally, I've definitely not been as invested in Game of Thrones as most people. I really didn't get in mm-hmm. until like season five, and it's because I binged the whole thing. Like, yeah. you know, wait, it, John, did you not in, did you not invest your entire psychology into <laughs> Daenerys Targaryen being a, being a symbol of everything you adore, and the second that that changes, like you're psychologically devastated? Is is that not what happened? I, apparently not. And also, you know, this <laughs> for someone who I, said like by, that. by yeah by blood or fire, like to all of a sudden destroy a city on a whim, it's like obviously it's completely out of character. When you know, it's yeah. it's not like her whole journey has been does she be a liberator or a tyrant? You know, that's not been yeah. her whole arc at all. <laughs> like this is completely out of left field. This is completely unexpected. Well, to, to be fair, like let's say that my favorite season was season five, and there's a long arc. It again across multiple episodes when they weren't say rushing to an end, and they don't have to spend half their year in Northern Ireland or Croatia. <laughs> They could take the time and say, like, well, you know, you're ruling, you don't, you want to free the slaves, however, we have these fighting pits, and, you know, like, it would really mean a lot to the people, and uh, uh, raise your approval rating if you kept them open. I know it's morally, I know you're morally conflicted, but, mm-hmm. yeah, they, she didn't get a chance to do that in one moment while Bells were tolling, so, yeah. yeah. I, I, not, that, not that we're complaining. <laughs> you, if anything, you know, you and I are not complainers. No, so. of course not. No, of course not. Yeah, we're we're very level-headed critics. We we are the yeah. we're a shining beacon in this world of of level-headed criticism. It's probably because we're men. Absolutely. We're not like you know <laughs> so emotional. Okay. <laughs> exactly. I, you and I are. I think look at things at a distance. We don't personally get invested. As immersive and deep as the game of thrones lore is like i caught myself like going into wikis and <laughs> kind of exploring things more i was just trying to figure out where what the tully clan was like i was like i know i, I know that name but they they really have yeah. no major plot threads <laughs> like they're not major players which i guess was kind of the final joke when you know that tully guy shows up is like i think i should be king and i was like shut up <laughs> <Yeah>. sit down <laughs> so i think i think 
the overall picture has been colored because what TV shows end the way that people want <laughs> exactly. them to. Exactly. <laughs> like, that's that's become like the fun debate is like, all right, name one finale that did end in the most satisfying way possible for all the fans. And yeah, I I I haven't found a good answer yet. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> no. And I think what's interesting about this one because they knew where it was ending. Mm-hmm. Like Breaking Bad, they. I believe uh, Vince Gilligan like explained this like at the beginning of their final in their sixth and final season they had no idea how it was going to end <laughs> whereas at least in the show like they had an impression of like starting from the pilot episode they had an impression of where it was going to go mm-hmm. um, which is so kind of rare for a TV sh- a TV series that runs for more than five six seasons mm-hmm. so I think from from that standpoint it is an achievement and it does end appropriately but yeah, I, it's a it's a different show. Also, <laughs> like, no, we can't. Obviously, we don't have the text of George R. R. Martin, the the sacred text of George R. R. Martin to draw from. <laughs> so yes, it fell into the hands of two very capable Hollywood screenwriters. Again, they're Hollywood, so <laughs> the the fact that they could kind of pull this together still is 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 an impressive achievement. So, I mean, they also directed the last episode, and uh, it's got some decent shots, I guess. <laughs> Very, uh, I, it's very flat. Did, yeah, did you notice a? Yeah, did you notice a, a decline in quality? I mean, not really. No, really. Okay, I, I think I it's did. just the haters. Um, I think it's the haters. Or <laughs> no, I think I think the the better the other directors are maybe better suited to do it. Um, uh, Greg, the wings behind her. Okay, that was like one perfect <laughs> shot. All right, they should teach that in film school. <laughs> That's that's my new dream is to become a film professor and say like you notice the wings behind her it's like she's a drag it symbolizes something guys I don't yes. know if you notice you know what they call that symbolism <laughs> how's your minds blown it's very subtle yes it's very subtle you may not have noticed it <laughs> but overall Game of Thrones good show yeah it was fine like it'll be interesting to see this is something I always find interesting is like do these shows have any real staying power. And well, I mean, people people still fawn over the wire mm-hmm. and Breaking Bad, maybe to a lesser extent. And the Sopranos, obviously, every every yeah. film critic brings up. Oh gosh, yeah. TV critic <laughs> brings up the Sopranos whenever whatever chance they can get. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see how much staying power Game of Thrones have, especially with the supposed decline of the last two seasons. But yes, and also and the decline of prestige television, mm-hmm. the gold the golden era. <laughs> Well, I think what will help is, and this has definitely helped with Breaking Bad, is that it's obviously going to have spinoffs. It's way too popular not to have spinoffs. Oh, that's true. So yeah. that's going to keep it in the cultural conversation. And people will constantly be revisiting and re-examining. So. Like Star Wars. Yeah. They have to keep making it to keep it in the cultural conversation. Star Wars. <laughs> well, also, I want to see about like whether whether it has this timeless quality. Mm. Because uh, I, I, I worry about this. Breaking Bad is kind of of an era, say, and really hit because it's post financial crisis, um, touching on the American healthcare system, and that's basically the whole impetus for the show. Um, I'm hoping in a few years that won't be the case, and it'll look back. We'll look back at it as a novelty or like a gl- glorish. People, people used to live. People used to live like this. Remember when people used to have to deal meth? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness we live in more enlightened times where meth has been extinguished. Yes, and uh, somebody's cancer treatment is completely covered. <laughs> That's cute, Greg. That's real cute. And teachers are paid are paid a living wage. That's so. cute. That's real cute, Greg. Yeah, you keep thinking that way. You keep yeah. thinking that way. But I mean, obviously, 
with the Sopranos, I, I forgot that I think the first few episodes are filmed in that Academy like four by three ratio, mm. which is so odd to see now. <laughs> it looks like it looks like automatically dated, but critics still like adore it. Mm. Well, then again, that was also such a revolutionary show in terms of thinking about uh, not just storylines across the season because it was before Lost, but also the trend of having like a pop song or violence and yeah, like. Uh, basically the whole template for TV shows today <laughs> we could trace back to Sopranos I'm not sure maybe what was revolutionary other than main characters dying mm-hmm. <laughs> or like really like kind of wringing uh, the greatest amount of twists out of a TV show that's what that's maybe that's what Game of Thrones is really that's what its biggest influence will be I'm not sure well I mean the big thing that everyone says the Sopranos contributed was the anti-hero the anti-hero yeah, he's true, like yeah. you want to root for him but he's also a bad guy <laughs> and so that was, you know, part of the appeal of Game of Thrones as well is the fact that we're following characters who are obviously devious and have their own yeah. agendas. But also, do they really care? Like Jon Snow was the only one who like really came the closest, even though he obviously had to make some tough decisions. I mean, that was the whole point of this finale. He killed his lover because he knew she yeah. was a bad ruler. <laughs> you know, it's all about you know the 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 weird moral gray areas that our characters find themselves in. And that's what the Sopranos introduced. And that's what we're all been chasing since. Okay. So anyway, go see the Sopranos. Um. <laughs> hey, have you heard about the show called The Sopranos? You should probably check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's on this channel, like the Pretty home bad. box office. I don't get it. Yeah. Whatever. I pre- uh, if you ask me, I prefer The Simpsons. <laughs> season 21 was their crown of cheap. <laughs> I think the show peaked in season 24, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> No, it jumped. It jumped the shark in season twenty-eight. Actually. Okay. <laughs> classic bit, John. Let's get to social media, shall we? Yes, where you can find more classic bits when you follow us on social media. You can check us out on Twitter. You can check us out on Facebook. And if you want to get real up and close, real personal, like, you can always send us a direct email at aspiringsnobs at gmail dot com. Yes, and since we've basically given your opinion of <laughs> sorry. <laughs> We've given you your opinion, okay? You have no choice. Yes, exactly. Since we've given your opinion of the Game of Thrones finale and the movie Paris, Texas, let, allow us to give you one more opinion. <laughs> Rate this episode five stars on your podcast service of choice, whether mm-hmm. it be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any service you're using. Please go ahead, review us, give us give us the top grade if you can, and then more people will find it, and uh, hopefully uh, it'll be a big success, and we can kind of build this aspiring snobs community. If you can. Like, they, like, <laughs> like I wish I could. It's a lot of work. Some of these things are a lot of work. you got to create an account. Uh, I guess that's true. I mean, and again, like, this, this goes back to the whole moral gray area. Some people might think we don't deserve five stars, but, I mean, we just asked them to what? give us five stars. It's like, can they betray their hearts like that? I don't know. <laughs> they would never, John. Come on. <laughs> What's that? Is that, do I hear the reins of Castamir? Oh, no. <laughs> a one-star review is like a knife to my heart. No. <laughs> that would hurt. That would really yeah. sting. Mm. Uh, well, Greg, because we've given them such primo content, I think it's time we tease them with a little something that we're watching next week. And Indeed. I'm not even going to ask you because I know you don't know. But and I also, I'm do gonna, know. No, I'm going to surprise you. Because oh, I changed up the schedule on you. What? Yes. It's John's pick. It's John's turn now. John's okay. the Mad King. <laughs> um, <laughs> turns out it's the 30th anniversary of a very special movie this this next week. 
And the only reason I know this is because I went to AMC this past weekend, and Fathom Events is doing a, a new screening of it this next weekend. So I thought, okay, why not catch it on the big screen, even though you can watch it at home. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes, next week is the 30th anniversary of a very special 80s movie, Steel Magnolias. Ah, uh, yes. It's been it's been a while for me. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've never seen it. I only know it. Okay. I only know those kind of choice lines and choice plot points. Someone dies in it. I know that much. It's a weepy. It's a weepy. <laughs> it's it's a it's a fun weepy. Yes. So look look forward to us having getting the vapors. <laughs> Mercy me! It's gonna be a yes. hot one. Having some Mystic Pizza. Um, <laughs> Julia Roberts dies in that one. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Greg, spoiler alert! <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I, I, I'm looking forward to this. I like this. Okay. See, yep. once again, John makes the perfect choice. Uh, you're Indeed. welcome, world. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just deserve five stars and everything for that. Uh, let's not go too far. Mm. Let's not go that far. <laughs> I'm going to make a personalized Yelp page just for me being as, <laughs> as a human being. Like, rate John Mantel as a human being. <laughs> Well, exactly, based on your trivia night success. (laughs) Bringing it back. All right. (laughs) Full circle. Yes. Yes. We plan every one of these episodes. We did it. In the meantime, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. Thank you.